one of the services that we try to provide here on In Love With The Process is to educate you, the listener, the moviegoer, the movie lover, uh, about what that long list of credits mean that you have to sit through in order to find out whether or not Venom is going to show up in the next Spider-Man movie. <laughs> uh, we like to shed some light, uh, put the spotlight on a lot of these crew positions that people just don't know about. And when you read about it, frankly, you scratch your head. Like, what is a best boy? Is he like the coolest guy on set? You know? Today's episode, we're gonna talk about one of the most important crew positions, one of the, one of the newer crew positions on a film set. Uh, we're gonna talk about the DIT. Now, what is a DIT? Well, it's a digital image technician. And uh, let's see, let me read you some definitions of what a DIT does. Let's get technical. What is a DIT? A DIT, or digital imaging technician, has three primary responsibilities. Data wrangling and protection, assisting the cinematographer, and dailies. At large, a DIT have many responsibilities. Uh, as the digital format becomes increasingly more advanced, uh, their job gets more complicated. Um, they are a unique member of the camera department with larger responsibilities such as organizing footage, dealing with onset color correction, um, and signal integrity. The, the DIT is commonly thought of as the liaison between the production and post-production teams. So to break that down into layman terms, they're just keeping an eye on your image. Now, uh, I think I've talked about this before, but I started as a cinematographer in this industry. I, I taught myself how to shoot digital. And uh, next thing I know, I'm shooting uh, documentaries, I'm doing music videos, I'm doing movies. Um, and I'm working in a medium, or I was working in a medium, that was incredibly experimental. Digital technology, uh, when it first started, and we're talking back in the early 2000s, um, was really trying to figure itself out. You had all sorts of different recording formats. You were recording to tape initially, and then you were moving to P2 cards, and then you're moving to CF cards, then you're recording directly to a hard drive. And really, uh, digital was advertising itself as making your workplace easier, making it easier to shoot on set. You don't have to, taking the guess game, guessing game, out of exposure, um, what you see is what you get through the monitor. All these promises that were kind of false promises in the beginning. Um, and what I realized early on is that it was actually incredibly technical and oftentimes very difficult in the simplest issue. Like if you didn't eject your card correctly, could lose thousands of dollars worth of footage, thousands of dollars worth of hours spent making that footage. And so uh, it became apparent very quickly that there needed to be a dedicated person on the set to handle that footage, not only for peace of mind, but for insurance reasons. Um, because now insurance companies, before you can get insurance to do a digital shoot, you need to have, you need to start to integrate redundancy. You had to have your footage backed up on multiple drives. I mean, there hit a point with a lot of folks where they were just like, man, these cards are cheap enough. Just buy a bunch of cards and don't anybody touch them and we'll send the cards to post-production. 
because they felt like putting too many hands on it or putting it onto too many systems led to the potential of uh, losing, uh, like I said, thousands of dollars. You know what I mean? Um, and so in the early days for me, that was my first experiences with what we called a DIT. And it wasn't until years later that uh, I started to get on bigger productions and bigger shoots and started to uh, direct union crews um, and started to work with some of these larger cameras that I realized that the job goes even further than that. Um, if you are a producer listening to the show and you're kind of rolling your eyes going, well, I always see the DIT just sort of sitting there at the cart. Uh, we're going to get into that. Uh, you're going to learn how incredibly uh, stressful this job can be, um, how incredibly insightful this job can be, how rewarding this job can be. Um, and it's just another one of those crew positions that you see in those credits that could lead to a great income, could lead to a great career path for many of you listening to the show. Welcome. You are listening to In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy or at the podcast Instagram. That's In Love With The Process, P-O-D. I have been trying to stay up to date and current with my posts, uh, trying to share my techniques, trying to tell you guys about what's going on with me and the behind the scenes of the projects that I've been working on, but also keeping you up to date and current with a lot of our guests that have been on the show. A lot of really, really fucking killer guests this year. Um, so thank you, everybody. And because of your listenership, because you guys have been sharing the show with your friends and getting our numbers up higher, um, I have had access to bigger and better guests and bigger and better sponsors for the show, which means uh, better things for you. So we're all in this together. And I really appreciate you guys understanding that. So tell your friends if there are folks that work in the movie industry and they've been looking for a place uh, to listen to other filmmakers and listen to other crew folks, this is the show for you. Uh, we don't just have on the hottest new actor and we don't have on the hottest new directors and, the, and people that come on to the show aren't coming on to pitch new projects. It is about talking about the life that we've decided to live. Um, so welcome. Hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, I've got a bunch of stuff. We'll catch up with you guys after uh, the interview. So let's not drag it out any further. You know the deal. Grab those noise canceling headphones, crank them up to 11. Sit back, relax, and join me as I hang out with today's guest, Mr. Charlie Anderson, DIT cinematographer, this guy has been on some of the best sets. He worked on Marvelous Miss Maisel for three seasons. And we're going to sit and get real nerdy because he's a total nerd and I love him for it. We're going to get real nerdy about the life of a DIT on the brand new episode of In Love With The Process.
Charlie, thanks for being on the show, man. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm stoked to be a part. I'm, a, I'm an avid listener and no. a fan. <laughs> I see all your hijinks and barbecue stuff with you and Kruda. So uh, I was just like, you know, I got to get in on the barbecue stuff. And uh, so thanks for having me on board. I yeah. You, well, you know, you, you know, Crew Dog, if you work with Crew Dog, do you know him? Yeah, he and I have known each other for, God, I don't know how long it's been at this point, uh, probably almost eight years, eight, nine years. So back when he was a DIT, mm-hmm. years and years ago, and mm-hmm. then he uh, made the smart decision and started shooting. Yeah, back, so, when he, back when he was a crew pup instead of a crew dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, it was great. I, I saw him probably this past summer. He and I had beers just catching up because it's been a while. Nice. Um, but it's been good. Yeah, no, I've known Dave for a long time. Nice man, nice another uh, another one in the group. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. It's it's funny how small the film, like how big the film community is, and yet how small it is. Yeah, at the I, same know. Time. <laughs> I know. I mean, where where are you? You're East Coast, right? You, you New York. I'm East or? Coast. Yeah, so I'm New York based. I live about an hour north of the city. Okay. Yeah. Um, in I, I'm up in Connecticut, so oh, yeah. uh, I decided I got away like five six years ago uh, because my rent was getting to the point of like being a house price. So I was like, why wouldn't I just buy a house instead? So that's what I did. That's what my wife and I did. We bought a condo and then I'm in my forever home right now. It's great. Well, dude, you escaped at the right time. There was at one point, because we moved out here, me and my girl moved out here like five months before the fucking lockdown. And at one point we were considering New York and thank fucking God we did. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> Talking like, about being in prison in like a shoebox. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just like not only that, but like you're stuck inside. You have the cold around that time too. I mean, we we literally closed in our house February twenty eighth, twenty twenty. So two weeks before everything <laughs> shut down, I was working on a TV show, um, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden we're like uh, closed on the house. And then I thought I was going to have like another eight weeks of work uh, mm-hmm. lined up. I was like, Oh cool. So I'm going to buy this house and empty my savings. I'm going to oh. do all this stuff. And now I'm like, cool. I got, you know, two more months of payments and whatnot. I had literally two more weeks of payments and that was it. So that was a fun, stressful experience. Oh my but, God, dude. Ugh, the life, life of a fucking crew, crew member, man. Life of I a know. fucking freelancer. Um, well, I'm excited to have you on the show. Um, I did go through your work and you've got a very impressive, uh, DP reel. Um, and, uh, I thought your work was really great. And, um, one of the things I really want to talk about on the show, because we haven't discussed it yet. And, uh, what I try, what I try to do on this show is sort of explain to the audience member, uh, what some of these credits, what these pesky credits are that they have to sit through while waiting for the cutscene at the end of a Marvel movie. <laughs> yeah. So um, <clears throat> I've never really discussed uh, DIT on the show. And so you've been doing this for quite some time, right? How long have you been doing it? Since 2007. Yeah. So Yeah. All right, dude. So then yeah, you know. Been, you know, it's, man. It's been a minute. I was literally at the start of the Red Revolution. Uh-huh. I was worked on one of the very first independent Red films called Toe to Toe. Okay. Um, and I that's back when we were called Red Techs back in the day. <laughs> Before, we weren't even DITs at that point. We were Red Techs because Red were so problematic and were so full of holes in the software and whatnot. Um that it was just, it, it, you needed to have a dedicated tech just for the red camera itself. 
Uh, just because, you know, you know, digital at that point, no one had really done a digital workflow. You had what, what, the P2 yeah. with like the Panasonic cameras and whatnot. So like you had the HPX 200, maybe the HPX 3000 or something like that, yep. uh, which were all P2 based media. So like digital media really wasn't considered and no one really knew what to do with it. They were literally, sh- they were buying cards and shipping them back to post. So I guess they still kind of do that now, but yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's where I kind of started back then. So it's funny. It's like you guys came in, came in the box with a red. <laughs> Quite literally, yes. And and it's 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 interesting. Is I have um, my favorite uh, red experience moment. Uh, I don't know if you've ever have you ever seen the movie Gamer at all? Yes, that's with um, uh, what's his name uh, Gerard Butler Gerard and Butler. Uh, Michael yeah, Cihar. Michael yeah, Cihar. Yeah. Um, that was one of the very first movies ever shot on red. And there's an awesome little behind the scenes snippet of that where they actually talk about like this instance of where the camera kept shutting off in the middle of like these this action sequence. And you're like, well, what's wrong with it? Because back back then they had the 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 <laughs> SSD, you know, that hard drive you literally had on the back of your camera. So if you don't remember that, that was just mm-hmm. before there were like CF cards or C flash cards, like back when eight gigabytes for a CF card was a lot of gigabytes. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they had this uh, this issue where like the camera kept shutting off and you're like trying to figure out I was like was it from the explosion or whatever like you know cause maybe the camera wasn't taking the shock waves and it turns out that like w- the red tech on site was just watching what was happening and they had the power button next to the operator's head and the operator's head kept hitting the power button and shutting the camera down <laughs> every single time because it was like a beta camera is like they put it like r- right next to the operator's head so they like oh so they literally took the camera apart and disconnected the power button from that, and then it was it was fine. But then they moved the power button around to the back side of it uh, for the red one, the OG <laughs> red. So it's just funny how that works. It's, people don't like, oh, maybe I shouldn't put a power button right next to an operator's head. Yeah, you saw a lot of that when they were putting these cameras out because you had these dudes that were, I mean, red. Or what was the guy doing before? He was like Oakley sunglasses or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim Gennard. Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, own, uh, he just wanted to like make a, a better camera, I guess. He just saw the opportunities like, hey, uh, I love digital uh, photos. Why don't we have digital cin- cinema? I mean, I don't know the full backstory. There's a lot sure. more people who know that better than I do. But Sure. But I mean, you were seeing these guys that hadn't built cameras before uh, trying to essentially beta testing the, this hardware out in the marketplace. And I just remember being a part because when I first started, I... Uh, came out of film school around like 1999 so like the that was right at that period of time where digital was like starting to be a rumor around and it was still like sort of shunned and all of the older dps that were uh 35 millimeter dps were like uh that's videos for fucking basketball games (laughs) you know what i mean yeah Uh, so it was uh wild to watch the evolution and i you know i started with you know the old canon xl1s and the gl1s and all that bullshit and then went through like uh Mini P- TV, man yeah then went through like ps technic adapters and then yeah oh my god i could put like still lenses on my camera and then that whole transition shooting upside down because you can't see the actual because the, the image flips and you can't actually flip the image in the actual uh, camcorder at all it's just like you like get a muscle memory for shooting upside down, or I'm like I like soldered my HBX to be able to flip the monitor. It was bad. <laughs> Completely avoided that warranty. <laughs> yeah, and they had like that spinning pitted glass that it would project on and inside, and it was yeah, like what was that? It was like a. It was. We pan- actually just talked about this recently with friends with like the Letus adapter and the, like yes. the Red Rock Micro M2, and there was one other too. I'm trying to remember the name of it. 
Yeah, and it, I remember it, like if we would do a shoot, and it was like, oh, the fucking glass wasn't spinning. <laughs> that was like the big. <laughs> you forgot the <laughs> forgot to turn the motor on. Yeah, yes, that, that was a big thing. Um, well, all right, but yeah. I, I love how quickly we dived into the nerdiness of this. Uh, for <laughs> the o- in a nutshell. <laughs> for the audience that doesn't know, what is a DIT? What is a DIT? Uh, so a DIT is a digital imaging technicians, and essentially we are the masters and the protectors of the image quality and color science and sometimes media acquisitions. Pretty much anything that's uh, nerdy on sets for the most part is what we handle. Actually, it's funny is my company's name is Dork in a Tent because someone called me that once and I was like, that is a fantastic name. I'm going to copyright that. And therefore I did. Oh, so, nice. But um, anything that has to do with like, I mean, it's, it's not just image control and color, although that is like a primary reason of what we do, but like we're also like technicians. I mean, that is literally part, uh, you know, part of the name in the job description yep. of having to completely be able to uh, handle uh, any sort of camera issues or networking problems or wireless stuff. I mean, I'm a lot of what I was doing before, um, I guess we can get into this later on of like, I mean, I was a full-time DIT. Now I'm, I've kind of uh, put that as the off, off on the side for the time being, but mm-hmm. um, uh, what I was doing is like 99% of what I was doing is either pairing Teradex together or, oh, uh, or, or, or talking talking to DPs about lens flares, essentially. It's like, just like, do you like this? Do you like this? Do you like this? And that's essentially what it is. But you get to a point of being able to just do things automatically because I've been doing it for like 15 years at that point. But um, yeah, anything re- related to you know digital cinema, networking, uh, creating your own Wi-Fi networks. I know back when I was, um, the last job I was working on, which was the Ray Donovan uh, finale, which I think actually just premiered uh, recently. Yeah. Um, I was like doing mesh networking on on camera or on set with cameras because we shot mini LF for all that. Um, and then just trying to keep everything um, coordinated and color uh, accurate on set. And really it comes down to just making sure that the cinematographer gets whatever uh, he say they are interested in for... Uh, what you're doing on set and make sure that's uh, translated to post so that way whatever they're whatever they're looking at on site and on set uh, right next to you is accurate all the way through down the pipeline so you know making sure that you know color representation is done correctly uh, on site so that way you know the dailies colorist can get all that stuff and then it's also translated to the colorist to um, any notes that sort of stuff so you're really kind of like you're wearing a lot of different hats it's not just someone sitting with a laptop downloading footage like that is not I mean, right. people call themselves a DIT for doing that, but that's not really what they're doing. I mean, it's a lot of, a lot of research, and it's you just need to know a lot of random shit to be completely <laughs> honest. It's just like, I mean, it's just like my my tech side of things. Of and I tell this story to people as well as like you know one of the reasons like well how did you get into DIT? Well, for me, I just I was a computer science major, and I just really wanted to be like working in film because I thought film was pretty rad back in like 2006, mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, how do I get that? And um, someone asked me, like, hey, do you have a laptop? I'm like, I sure do. And so uh, <laughs> here's my here's my Apple laptop. And I was like, cool, can you download this red footage? And I'm like, I don't know what that is, but yes, let's do it. And so I just uh, kind of like jumped in head first with all that stuff. And that's when I realized that like, this thing is just a computer with a lens on it. Yeah, yeah, like, pretty much. That's, that, that's all it is. So I learned um, pretty much this is back when like, you know, Silverstack didn't exist, Pomfort didn't exist. You had pretty much, I was doing offload copies with R-Sync um, because that's what I use. That's what I use for, you know, doing all my 
computer science classes and everything like that. So it's well, like, well, I was hold, 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 on. hold on a second. I have to jump in here every once in a while because I know that there's probably five guys listening to the show right <laughs> yeah, now that are like, oh, yeah, yeah, we get it. And then there's a majority yeah. of people going, all right, he's saying a lot of things. I don't fucking yeah. know. All right. So hold on. Let me interject okay. in here. I feel like I have to like, you know, put on my little description hat. We're going to cue the music for, <laughs> for describing what's happening. When these cameras first came out and they came out onto the marketplace, it really fucked up the entire system for how uh, movies were, were normally run. So like normally you would have film cameras, you had an entire department dedicated to actually loading film cameras, keeping track of film reels and like sending film reels to be uh, processed. And the, even all the way down to the insurance on a film, it was all sort of set up in such a way where uh, the system was in place that your film would be protected, your footage would be protected, and you'd go from there. Then uh, out came this experimental digital camera uh, game, and we talked briefly about P2 cards, which is like the early versions of like CF cards, the early versions of what you would do if you were shooting on a DSLR. And suddenly, from a guy who was producing stuff at that time and trying to get fucking production insurance, it became a thing where they're like, okay, so... Who, <laughs> yeah. like, who's in charge of this footage and where does it go? And it can suddenly be deleted and randomly this happens. And then you're sort of like ENF insurance and you're, you're sort of processing like, how do I, how do I guarantee to my clients that this is going to happen? And, and I had plenty of those times where I was shooting early on in the day and you, you just lose a fucking card. Like you'd lose footage, which was thousands of dollars, just yeah. sort of flushed down the fucking toilet. And I think really quickly and early on, not only was there a need to have a dedicated person uh, to do that sort of thing and to be in charge of transfer footage, but then it also came down to like, how do we um, make sure that this is... Uh, dependable for insurance reasons and i think when you mentioned before people just buying cards and shipping cards to the post-production studio i think that was just to keep hands off of it so that the footage wouldn't get corrupted and then they started to put out these programs that you were talking about before which were programs that would copy the footage for redundancy reasons so then you would have to put it on multiple different hard drives just in case a hard drive fucking failed or just in case yeah. someone dropped it somewhere um and it became quickly evident to us uh, as filmmakers and producers that like, whoa, I mean, yes, we could shoot quickly. We can kind of see what we're shooting on a monitor, which is actually what's being shot into a camera. But this is dangerous <laughs> because we can lose this footage. And this, like just a corrupt card or unloading the card incorrectly from a camera can make it uh, the footage on, like you can't access the footage. Um, and so it became really fucking scary. And I think the DIT was that, position for me when I was working as an independent before I got into like color management and networking and, and union sets and all that sort of stuff. It was just peace of fucking mind. And I wanted someone like you, a computer nerd in that scenario, because it's like, how come I can't load these fucking cards? And you needed to understand not only uh, computer interfacing, but you had to uh, understand how to recover cards and how to actually go through the process of data recovery and stuff, you know? 
Yeah, sorry, I may have gotten ahead of myself. I just get on <laughs> tangents when I talk about stuff, and I can go down entire rabbit holes of just being like, oh, yeah, sure, let me tell you all this complicated jargon that no one has any idea of what it is. What do they call you, nerd in a tent? I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's it just, it just comes out like instantly. I'm like, oh, cool, I'm talking to a, someone else who talks the same language as me. Let me go down. And I'm sure like a lot of people's eyes just glaze, glazed over when I start talking about you know, R-Sync. Um, but what's but yeah, it's 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 like you're you're absolutely hundred percent correct in the in the aspect of like there was no one to have to you know handle this and manage it, and therefore like a whole new position came out of it. And yeah, um, it's just I mean a lot of people these days are you know they, there's plenty of shoots that I've, I've been on myself as well as you know as an operator or a DP who you know don't have a DIT, and therefore they're just you know having someone That's drag and drop media from a you know, a mag to a hard drive, which, you know, scares the absolute bejesus out of me. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they didn't have that 15 years ago. Like, there was no there was no protocols. No one knew how to do it. The, the concept of backing up footage, like, to multiple, to multiple spots, mm -hmm. like, securely and having, like, checksums, you know, I mean, sure, I'm sure people will understand what checksums are. Um, <laughs> but, like, uh, that, that just wasn't a concept back in, like, the, er, the you know, 2010 or so, or 2015. 2008, I guess, is when I yeah. moved to New York. Yeah, I mean, but but then as this technology starts, starts to develop and as you uh, get more experienced with, you know, doing post-production with this technology and then sort of processing the excitement of, I mean, there was this whole period of time where, where digital cameras were like the bastard stepson that was like desperately trying to prove itself against, you know, these the elitist, you know, film cameras where it's like how many stops of of exposure does does this uh camera do and and oh wow we can shoot this stuff raw and that, and so then you're getting into this game of like great this fucking camera could shoot you know at the time 4k or 3 or 2k i think it was 2k at the time but my yeah, but my a... computer can't fucking run it you know and so <laughs> yeah. then you're like i can't edit this thing so then they had to deal with proxies and running out proxies and then uh which were smaller versions of that file and then you would edit with a lower res version of that file and then essentially just online that in the back end uh, with the, you know, the higher res version of stuff. And so it just started to become incredibly complicated um, and you needed to have somebody that was doing more than just transferring files on set, but also understanding how these cameras work, understanding what the settings for these cameras were and understanding the ramifications for what you shoot in post-production. Uh, for a lot of this stuff, correct? Yeah, as well as like, how do you do that online, offline process, proxy process? How do you handle that? How do you handle color transforms between, yeah, you know, different uh, different color sciences between PC, uh, not PC, uh, P3, um, DCI, mm -hmm. 709, mm -hmm. 2020. Like there's, it's, there's so many different things that I have to go into because most people just like, nowadays it's just like, hit go on the camera and then it records like like, you know, back end what like i'm trying to think of like what was the very first like major uh digital production was it the star wars prequels i think I, shot on the genesis yeah there was the star wars stuff there was a bunch of early game i remember there was a movie that they shot in boston uh, session nine i think was digital and then there was a couple of others that were around that time too but yeah i mean i think lucas was definitely 
And what was he shooting with? I think he was shooting. Was he shooting with Sony's or something? I can't remember. He was either like, yeah, it might have not the Genesis. I'm just thinking the Genesis was uh, some other uh, production. I was thinking of, but yeah, they were like the early Varicam uh, style. Yeah. So like when you see the like behind the scenes photos, it looks just looks like a Beta Cam like you would get from like a newscaster with like this, you know, this Fuji lens that's on there. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. It's just it's just wild how like we've come so far. Uh, nowadays where it's just like second nature, but it never used to be that way. It used to be like super stressful. There's always like the fear on the DIT side for a while there that like, you know, post houses were trying to get, uh, get rid of DITs because they're trying to, they think that like, oh, well the, the DIT is, uh, we, we can do what they're doing better. Um, <laughs> And, you know, and, and then you have to like kind of fight for your own position and realize like, hey, I'm not just doing downloading in color. Like I'm an asset to everybody on set because you're also a member of the camera department. So you're not just there. Yeah. Just, you know, off on the side, just in your own little world. Like, I mean, I'm watching the, sh the shot as it happens. I'm helping be an extra pair of eyes for your focus puller to make sure things are sharper if there's something in the frame or anything like that. So it's not like you're not just sitting there, you know on your computer all day long looking at Reddit or cat photos. You're just sitting there and actually being an active member of the camera department and making sure that, you know, things are, are you know, good to go. And, and I could go on for hours about signal processing and cart builds and color theory. It's just, you know, there's a lot that's uh, involved with all that stuff. Well, if, and if, you, if you guys are listening and you go back and listen to some of our episodes that we've had with the cinematographers on the show, um, you guys ended up essentially being sort of handholders for a lot of cinematographers that were coming over from the film world too, where suddenly the the cameras that were sort of self-contained and sort of very mechanically based um, are now tethered to an umbilical cord of fucking cables that were running into a tent. And, and then they're, uh, the transition, <laughs> it's a rare moment. And I think one of the reasons why David Crude and I get along so well uh, is that he's the cinematographer that uses a fucking light meter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, very rare, very rare. <laughs> so there's a, because everybody then became uh, attached to monitors and now you have the video village tents and the repercussions of the video village tents, which a side tangent, not only do a lot of actors hate that, but then also as, as a cinematographer in my early days myself, I hated that because the fucking clients were consistently had their noses in monitors and had a hundred things to say before the shot was even completed yet. Um, so you guys acted as this really as a life, as like a life vest for the cinematographers that were coming over from the film world where everything was pretty much in their own mind and in their very small knit crew, like your, your first, your first AC, your loader, your focus puller, all those guys, you got, they would have their, their own little language, but now you've got a f fucking signal that's going to, to like, uh, like giant HD monitors all over the place with like clients and producers, everybody staring at it. And you're like, okay, so what are they seeing? What is the color profile that they're seeing? Is this color yeah. profile going to be the color profile that we finally see? Is this going to look this way when it ends up in the edit room? Um, and that management itself, like LUTs and uh, preview LUTs, uh, became a fucking huge issue uh, for for cinematographers. Correct? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, you go from having essentially the operator being the only person who can see what's going on in a film camera to literally forty people now being able to see everything yeah. instantaneously as you're looking at it, and it could be 
something as simple as like, well, this looks too dark. And then you go over to the monitor and you notice that someone's turned the, the brightness all the way down <laughs> or, you know, things that aren't like calibrated properly or anything of that nature. Therefore, it's like I always just tell people or put stickers on video village monitors that says not accurate color. Just so that way people don't speak up and yell about things. I can't tell you how many commercials I've done where a client's like saying like, well, we don't know how how this looks. This looks too bright or or this looks like off or it's too yeah. yellow or whatever. I'm just like, I, it's like those aren't accurate. And then you get it. I'm not even going to get into the Zoom streaming stuff where like you have people now sitting in the comforts of their home oh, you know, yelling at you uh, while they're, you know, sipping on lattes and, you know, having their nice uh, comfort uh, climate controlled uh living room and they're like oh well you know the snow looks too too bright can you do something whereas it's like you know 17 degrees outside you're like i hate my life right now this is terrible um <laughs> but like to, even still yeah i used to tell my d my dits when we were, when i was doing commercials and i know there's a lot of clients that listen but this is the deal i used to tell them like have the monitors go down <laughs> please. <laughs> just have some sort of technical issue happen just have the monitors go down so that the monitors are out and they're like oh we can't see anything don't worry it'll come up right before the shot it's fine we're trying to fix it have the monitors go down <laughs> yeah just like quickly just have macros set up on your video switcher and be like oh no this one's off now yeah. I, used, I actually I've, I've actually had like a little stream deck set up where like i would do that where just automatically just press a button it's like oh everything's off <laughs> yeah, you need that sometimes. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, you guys have become such a valuable part of uh, the cinematographer's toolbox at this point because you really are the gatekeepers for all the data and uh, the way that the data goes out and making sure that it looks the way that uh, that the cinematographer wants. It's, it's almost like you're a living, breathing light meter at this point for a lot of this stuff. Yeah, because... Um yeah, you can have, I mean, I like working with DPs who use a combination of light meter and monitor. Like they'll go, they'll spend all their time on set with a light meter, like getting things done. And I'm just, you know, sitting there watching the whole process happening and watch everything light, whatever. And then they'll come back to me, sit next to me and watch the take to make sure that it's all good. It looks the way they should or through, uh, you know, rehearsal or whatever. So mm -hmm. uh, very, very few DPs kind of work that way these days, but because um, I guess it's like a, a skill set that not a lot of people do, or it's just, you know, I'll, I mean, I'm guilty of this myself for some shot, uh, shoots I do where like I've been on jobs where like I don't even have time to go back to DIT. Like I'm like, I'm, I've done a couple commercials yeah. um, where like I just, I just do not have time. So I'm like, I just, all I have is a light meter and kind of an idea. And I was just like, uh, I just yelled at my friend. I was like, Joe, let me know if we're good. I'm like, and then like if I don't hear from him, then I, I know I'm good. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. Yeah, I love that stuff. And it's, it's a, if you're listening to the show today, and a lot of like young DPs, I'm sure, are tuning into this stuff today, get your hands on a light meter if you haven't and teach yourself how to use it. Because uh, I know it may seem like the unsexy tool to use. Uh, it doesn't have, I mean, a lot of the new stuff has uh, some crazy shit on it, but it's not, yeah. an, it, it's not a sexy app. Um, but, what it does is uh, it enables you to work before the monitors go up. It enables you to work before the cameras power up. And you can actually work with your gaffers and with your lighting team. And they can be pre-rigging and working on another set um, using their light meters uh, before all this fancy expensive gear has to get carted over to that set too. And it really, not only does it speed up uh, the setup time for stuff, but then it also gives you a sense of confidence 
if you spend the time prior to your shoot and make sure that everything's calibrated the way you want it to be calibrated, make sure that you do some tests with your light meter and make sure that you're still getting the results that you think you're getting when you go over to the monitor and you talk to your uh, digital imaging technician. Um, and then it will really sort of come back. It, I think the biggest problem that I faced when I was shooting was that it started to feel too technical started yep. to become the, there was this technical tidal wave that was just overwhelming me. Yeah. And, and then you have certain DITs who just like feel like they need to be in control of everything and start telling your DP how to light and all that stuff. Like Ugh. I, I absolutely do not do that whatsoever. I'm more of a, I'm here to be a, a guide in a, a, a second set of eyes or whoever you like, do you want to talk to me about the lighting? Do you like, I ask the DP every time I work with a new one, especially with commercial, like how involved do you want me to be in the process? Like, do you want me to be like point out every little thing? Do you want me just to sit back and make sure we're good? Or do you want to make sure that I have my cappuccino maker on the cart ready to go? <laughs> like what do you, how involved do you want me to be? Cause I'll be as more as, as much or as little involved as you want, because like at the end of the day, I'm here to assist the DP and make sure that their vision is what's portrayed across that, whether that's making sure that, you know, every little thing is captured or pointed out, or just like sit there and make sure that, you know, uh, the whites are whites and the, there's a good contrast ratio mm -hmm. um, or whatever. But yeah, I mean, using a light meter is paramount because you can go on a scout and know what, how much light you need in a stuff in, in, in a, in a scenario, a location, or whatever, so you can kind of get an idea of what's already existing there. That's how you do. Another thing I'll tell people too is learn how to calibrate, either calibrate your light meter or calibrate it in a sense where, like, if you understand like how you're lighting now, or you want to learn how to let, use the light meter, like, shoot how you're shooting now and understand what your light meter is telling you, and and understand how that correlates to like false color or mm -hmm. like how lighting ratios work or whatever your contrast thing is going. So that way you can then learn what um, you know, what this device is telling you in terms of stop or lighting or whatever, and then you can go into an area or onto a set or a location scout or something of that nature and know that, oh, I'm shooting this, it's at a T2, I really want to be shooting at a T4 or 5.6 or, you know, 4.5 or whatever, so I'm going to need to bring in X amount of light into this space, and that's, but we can't, we're going to see 360, so it's got to be outside, therefore I need to bring in, you know, two 18Ks mm -hmm. up on a lift to blast in through the light. So, like, you can understand that. Mm -hmm. going into things ahead of time um, but it's like and it just it just makes it so much faster as opposed to like having to keep run back and forth or just bring something else or like you don't have to worry about that sort of stuff so it really comes down to just making sure that you have the right tool for the right job and I and honestly I would say that across the board with cameras in general of just like I mean, I could get into that all day long too. I'm just like, everyone always has like, everyone's like, well, what's your favorite camera? I'm like, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a tool. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's great. It's great to hear you say that because it's true. Um, and before you dive too into that, I, like, I like deconstructing a lot of your nerd statements that come out. But I'm when, trying not to get too, too nerdy about it, but I'm happy to do so. But it was interesting to hear you talk through that process. Um, a lot of that stuff may sound incredibly techy to you, where he starts talking about shooting T2 and you want to be at a 4.5. If I break that down even further, what we're talking about is the aperture setting on the lens itself. And if you are, uh, if you've worked with lenses before, if you know if you're shooting them wide open, if you're shooting them at like a 2 or a 1.8 for, for like super speed lenses, it's a very shallow focus. Um, so if you're pushing that higher up to 4.5, 5.6, it actually gives you more of a focus range. So if you're doing a scene that has two actors that are in it, 
and they're going to be a little bit further away from each other in a close-up, and you don't want to be doing ridiculous rack focuses, you're opening your lens up to that, which requires more light at that point. Um, and the only way that you're going to learn these things is by doing them, A, and then by being on set and seeing someone else do them on set. Um, and I remember when I first started, because people are always asking me about lighting. They always come to me about lighting, and I, I spent a lot of time doing that stuff with my work. And lighting, when I started, seemed like, uh, like such a magical fucking thing. Like it was, you know, it was like, how does this work? <laughs> how, do, how do people sculpt with lighting? And you just turn a light on. And I remember the first day as a young pup, I remember the first day that I realized, holy shit, outside light is blue and inside light <laughs> is tungsten. It was, like, it, was like, it was like taking the pill in the matrix where suddenly I went, holy fuck. Because it was something that you just don't register um, as, as just an average viewer. Um, and it's just experience in time that, uh, really sort of sets this in place for you. And if you are smart and if you're working as a camera department PA, or if you, even if you're just working as a PA and you're standing around locking down a set, look around and see what people are doing and see what people are using. And, and when a cinematographer is pulling out his light meter and when a gaffer is pulling out their light meter. And then if, if you're on a small enough set where you can communicate with these people, then ask them questions. You start to hear uh, <laughs> a, a sentence full of technical jargon and then go over and talk to the DIT and be like, what the fuck does any of that stuff mean? And have them sort of like walk you through it if there's time and you're able to do that. Um, yeah. And you can learn these things, you know? It's, it's, it's funny that you said that because there's, a, there's actually... Um, I, so when I was uh, full-time DITing, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing... Um, a little bit here and there these days. Yeah. Uh, when I was full time DITing on TV shows and whatnot, um, the the one of the TV shows I was working on here on, in New York was called uh, uh, Raising Canaan Power Book Three, or okay. vice versa. Power Book Three, Raising Canaan. That's the new power spinoff uh, that they were doing uh, for Stars. And there is one PA who would like always. There's like a, there's actually there's two PAs who would always ask me questions about DITing, whatever. One was like very curious and like was very genuine, and one other who was just like, I want to be a director, so therefore I want to know every, everyone's role on set. So uh, there was one day where he came up to me. He's just like, I all I do is I just see you sit there on your computer and you just watch the monitor. He's like, I can do that. I can do your job. And I was like, Oh really? Ugh. You can do my job. So I was like, <laughs> I I forget the guy's name. So I was like, Hey, okay, PA, have a seat. He's like, What? Have a seat. And I talked to the the DP. His name's uh, Ernan. I was like, Ernan, so tell 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 this kid like what you know what you're looking for, what you're doing, and have him change some stuff. He's like, he's like, all right, cool. So like, uh, so I need I need to like you know change color temper on the cameras. Like we got to switch NDs. Like you know it's it's too shallow focus. I want a little deeper focus because we're at the we're looking at stuff. He's like he's like cool. So you can tell everyone to do that, right? He's like, uh, uh. I'm like also make sure that you know just notice that like you have a lot of green in the in, you know because you're shooting fluorescence, right? You like you need know, to take that. Like green out, how do you do that? He's like, uh, these these color balls here do something. I'm like, very good, very good. They do do something. So it's just like, <laughs> we just put on the, I put them on the spot immediately. I'm like, look, I'm not trying to be an asshole about it, but look, look, just because he doesn't look like I'm doing anything doesn't mean that I'm not doing anything. A lot of, a lot of what we do, uh, surprisingly, is um, in prep. And there's a there's a big thing of like we're trying to get people to give us prep days and try to give us the yes. ability to get things ready because. Um, the idea is like 
you want to be prepared as n- enough to be able to handle any situation that may arise. So therefore, you need to make sure like you know everything, everything's set up and dialed in properly. You kind of mentioned that before about having all the camera settings, just like knowing all that, all those details and making sure that everything's good. But like there are definitely times where like I've not had to do anything because everything's set and everything's mm-hmm. proper. And like if I do a good enough prep job, um, I'm almost not never like running around, you know, you know, trying to, you know, catch up, catch my own tail kind of deal. And there's actually times where people are like, "Uh oh, DIT is on set. What's wrong?" So it's like they kind of understand that all, sure. all of a sudden, like, if, if, if you're there, something must be wrong. And I'm like, "No, I'm bored because I, I, I'm too too efficient at what I was doing. So therefore, I need to get up and not do and do something different because also I need to stretch my legs." So. Well, dude, I've had clients or asshole producers bring up stuff like that on any sort of crew per- person where they like, yeah. "What is that person doing? It looks like they're just sitting around all day." And, I'm, and it, I, my response to them. Is that means they're doing their fucking job? Like yeah, if they're 100%. if they're that relaxed, that means that they've done their fucking job, and you don't want them not to be relaxed. Let's just be honest about it. And yeah. I love that story because there's a lot of young listeners that listen to the show that are still dealing and sort of processing. How do I put this lightly? They're still processing with their arrogance. <laughs> yeah. So, and so when you're younger, and believe me, I went through it. You know, part of your defense mechanism for insecurity is arrogance. And it's sort of like, oh, well, I read this and this is what I heard or I saw this clip on YouTube. And, you know, Scorsese says that this is the way it is. So this is the way it fucking is. Be careful of that when you're on set, because I know as a crew person when I was younger and I know so many crew guys that will very happily take the time to knock you off your pedestal. Uh, if you open your mouth like that, I can't believe that he comes over and says that shit to you. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fun. I mean, I, he kind of said it half jokingly, but also at the same time, yeah. I just like you know, I sometimes you just have to you know take people at their you know at face value. Like, okay, cool, you can do my job better. Please, by all means, I could use a break to crafty. Please, go ahead. Yeah, see see how it is. And but it's also a nice um, you know I I say that in a jokingly manner, but it's also like I also tell people. Um, you know, how to do things. I, I give people, like, if someone wants to know what I do, I'm more than happy to, like, sit down and explain it to them, understand, like, you know, what it takes to become a DIT. Um, I've mentored a few people, like, my that my mentee who I, I, I you know, helped train and, and come up throughout the, the years is now, like, surpassing me in terms of, like, awesome projects and whatever. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I handed off, um, like, I did the, my most notable show that I worked on was The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I did the first three seasons of that. Yeah. And I got an opportunity to uh, operate and shoot on the show FBI. And so I needed somebody to hand the show off to. And uh, my buddy Mike was just like, you know, he would cover me all the time. So productions knew him. Um, like, he, he was, you know, it was his turn. Like, he needed to have, like, the, you know, that opportunity to go up and, like, be a better part of that show. Mm-hmm. Um, or just, just in a TV show in general. So I was like, hey you're going to do this. And he's just like, what? I'm like, you're going to do this. This is your show now. Enjoy. Like I literally hand this to you on a silver platter, but like also realize that like, this is a big deal. Like this is like one of the biggest shows right now that's running in New York. Like you need to step up your game. You can't just sit back and be, you know, um, uh, you know, whatever about it. You have to like, actually yeah. like I, I put things in place to protect you, but you'll be fine. Like just like we spent like, like, days and days and days talking about prepping and how to get things and how to kind of how they have these conversations with production and post and what to ask for when to ask things how to ask things there's like a lot of political stuff involved with that too so yeah it's a it's a like it's not just like a you know 
uh, uh, someone who's sitting in a tent in a chair and just hanging out and doing stuff like there's a there's a lot that goes on beyond behind the scenes and as with any anything like being a nice pleasant person because you're you know having to sit next to like a cinematographer all day and sometimes a gaffer to key grip and sometimes a producer will come and hang out with you so like you have to be able to hang and have the uh, uh, production smarts of like when to speak up how to speak up how to talk to people mm-hmm. about things and like not hit reply all to a long email when it has to do with like technical issues like how to how do you solve this thing like how do you bring up things to people um it's just there's a, a big skill set for that so but anyway he was now he's like surpassing me now he works on the daily show nice. um nice and now he 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 took over he did season four of Maisel. uh i don't know if he's doing this season or not but i know he's like he, he's doing the daily show he does a bunch of commercials he, he was up for an emmy wow. for some dit work and i was like bro that's <laughs> did better than me good for you like i'm i'm super happy that he's able to surpass me with all that stuff. So that's great. That's, which is what you want as a mentor. You want someone to surpass you, take all the knowledge and whatnot that you've given them. Like, hey, make your own career out of this. And I'm happy to see you. I'm happy to see him, you know, f- you know flourish and strive. And well, great. I mean, dude, uh, being a DIT and Miss Maisel must have been a fucking crazy show because that is one of the te- oh, one of the most technically beautifully shot uh, t- uh, streaming service shows that are out there right now. And talk about technical. Uh, how was that job? That was um, fantastic. Uh, do you, uh, real quick though, do you edit the show? I have to pee so bad right sure, now. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'll be back in 10 seconds. Hold on. Maybe not. Okay, it is time to take a break and talk about sponsors. And I know that there's a lot of techie dudes listening to the show, a lot of really nerdy girls that are into. Uh, being a crew person that are into potentially being a DIT or being in the camera department. Um, And uh, we've got some sponsors on today's show, which I think you'll find interesting. Uh, For those of you just joining us, you haven't heard me talk about my buddies over at Puget Systems. Now, Puget Systems, these guys build high-powered PCs to work for software that you use. It's pretty cool, right? Um, I have had a Puget system on set. We've actually had a full-size workstation. Uh, we had it on the set of uh, Who's There, the proof of concept shoot that we did. And my DIT was running his Puget system, uh, which works really well. Um, and he was able to not only go through the process of backing up footage and uh, processing footage, but he also was able to do some rough assemblies with full resolution footage on set. Think about it. If you guys are into this kind of thing, I've talked to the guys over at Puget. They know the systems to build. So head on over to PugetSystems.com. There you can build a system based upon the software that you're going to use. They will suggest hardware to you. But what is so special about Puget is that they want to talk to you about what it is that you're doing. So you can talk to one of their consultants um, and tell them about your career, tell them about your dreams, tell them about the kind of computer that you want to have built that actually works specifically for what you need, and these guys will help you do it. And what I love about Puget is that they're not building and peddling hardware. They don't manufacture hardware. These guys go through the painstaking process of sorting through all the new hardware that comes out in the marketplace, uh, testing it, benchmark testing it with all these different software products that we use, and coming up with a definitive list of what works the best. 
These guys stay up to date with all the software updates. Uh, it is a, such a great resource. Even if you're not looking to build a computer right now, or maybe you're trying to build your own computer, head on over to Puget Systems. These guys post newsletters. These guys stay on top of things. They talk about different codecs. They talk about what is working and what isn't working right now. Um, let me take a look and see what's going on here. Let's go to PugetSystems.com. If you click on publications and articles on their website, this is where they start talking about what they have been researching. Let's see, the latest one, January 13th. Unreal Engine 5 is becoming more real. Uh, let's see, what are they writing about here? Uh, the Matrix, oh, so they're talking about The Matrix Awakens. Uh, a bunch of the new Unreal 5 experiences. And these guys, of course, are putting together very specific Unreal Engine workstations. So if you're someone that wants to get into the Unreal stuff, these guys are doing the research on what hardware works best. I'm telling you, man, head on over to PugetSystems.com, check them out, go through their stuff. I think you're going to be very impressed with it. And then look at the prices for their workstations. They are cheaper than the larger companies that are out there, and you get a hell of a lot more for it. And you're not just paying for the unboxing experience. You're actually paying for the hardware that's going to make shit work better for you. Head on over to Puget Systems and check it out. Also supporting the show are our friends over at Vitafair. If you are a creator, a content creator that is finally looking to reach a larger audience, and more importantly, you're like, hey, I need to make some income on this stuff. So I need to start charging for some of my films or charging for my series, um, but where do I post it? And there are a bunch of different places that charge you all sorts of different amounts. Some of these places will charge a percentage of what you are trying to charge your viewers. The thing I like about Vitafair is that they don't do that. They just uh, hit you up with a hosting charge, a basic fee, which is like under six bucks to post your stuff for, I think it's for up to a year. Don't quote me on that, but head on over to vitafair.com and check it out. Um, and I like it. It's all stripped down. There isn't any sort of bullshit. These guys are obviously not trying to be greedy, not trying to make money off of every click that you're getting. Um, and they're just straightforward about it. And I dig that. Uh, monetize creativity. They support creators' content without subscriptions. Uh, fair trade video. Head on over to vidafair.com. That is V-I-D-A-F-A-I-R.com. And check them out, man. I'm telling you, you guys are going to be impressed if that's what you're looking for right now. And that's what we try to do with our sponsors on this show. Uh, as you notice, they are all over the place for filmmakers, for directors. Uh, we're even expanding our sponsorships beyond that. We're trying to get into the barbecue market now and all this sort of stuff. I like to pick out these companies specifically because I like their shit and specifically because I think it speaks to you guys. Uh, let me know. Write to me on Instagram and be like, hey, we've always wanted to know about this company. Can you do a little research for us? We'll do it for you. Uh, let's see who else is on the show today. Oh, our friends over at Jambox. Now, you've heard how excited I've been about Jambox this season. I cannot express this enough. And everything about this read distills down to this one sentence. Jambox is the sponsor that if you sign up for it, if you go through their website, it will change your work today. And I can honestly say that. Why can I say it this way? Well, if for many of us, 
Uh, we are content creators. Like I do this podcast, I make movies. And one of the hardest things to find is music, licensed music, music that you're able to use legally, right? Music that when you put it on and put it up on a website, they won't take it down because you haven't dealt with the copyright restrictions. And then, okay, great. So now you're talking about stock music, unless you're friends with a musician or composer, or maybe you're paying a musician or composer to do specific stuff for you. Power to you. I do that on a bunch of my projects, but not every project has the money for that. Not every project is important enough to get another person involved at that level. What I like about Jambox, Jambox breaks all the rules for a music licensing website. I don't know if you guys have been through stock music websites, but they all suck. They really do. The music is mediocre. It isn't emotional. You feel like you're sorting through a musician's throwaway bin that he's like, yeah, maybe I'll make some money on this stuff. I'll throw it up on this website. I hate it. I've always hated it. And I've dreaded that point in a production where the producer hasn't put it together enough money for music and they sort of go, just find us some stock music website thing and see if you can just find a track on there. And then they start to be incredibly specific about their tracks. You know that fucking epic song in The Revenant? See if you can find that on the music licensing website. And you're like, come on. And then when if you're an editor for these things, you spend all this time putting together this beautiful footage, these great performances, and then you slap some bullshit track underneath it and it just destroys it. What I found with Jambox, and this blew my mind, these guys have great, great tracks. It didn't make any sense to me. And I had the owner of Jambox on a prior episode this season, we talk about it, uh, and I found out what really happens here. These guys have been music in the music licensing business for years. With their other company, they were actually doing music for Michael Bay's trailers. They understand the level of quality that is needed for higher and productions. And so they wanted to take that same level of detail and put it into a music licensing website. So what they do is they work specifically with artists. They will team up with an artist, a musician. They will pay that musician to essentially do an album specifically for Jambox. It's so fucking rad, man. And there are so many great musicians, great producers on this website that produce uh, material that I would listen to on Spotify. This is the type of material that you'd find running if you were listening to a uh, new retro wave fucking channel on Spotify. You'd be like, oh, cool. Who's this band? Oh, oh, Tox. Oh, oh, weird. Okay. Right? It's awesome, man. Head on over to jambox.io now. Check it out. They have a bunch of different pricing options if you want to get into the subscription plans. And the subscription plans work really well if you're creating a lot of content. So like if you're doing podcasts and you want your music to be at par with what our music is. And I'm going to say this right now. I take pride in the music on our show. Uh, this music is contributed uh, mostly by amazing artists that are out there making fantastic stuff. And if you haven't listened to them, Make sure you go check out my Artist Spotlight episodes where I talk about all the different artists that put together music for the show. The song that you're listening to under this ad is coming from Jambox. It blends right in, doesn't it? Right? It feels like it belongs. That's because it's from a real artist. It's from someone that spent the time to make this song specifically for 
Jambox. If you're a uh, uh, podcast creator, if you're a YouTube channel maker, head on over and sign up for their unlimited creator package. You can get 30 day free trial. It's only $9.99 a month. Um, and you get full access to all their music, unlimited downloads, stuff that you can use for your YouTube content, your social creations, personal student projects, web and streaming. It is a great deal for someone that's creating consistent content. If you're someone that is doing a lot of commercial work, maybe you have quite a few commercial clients that are coming back to you all the time and they're expecting quality shit. Sign up for their unlimited commercial account. Uh, you get a seven day free trial with that and it's $19.99 a month. And then you can use that music or those sound effects uh, for everything from the creator plan. Uh, you get full access to all sound effects and stems of the tracks, which is really great. And then you can use it for paid advertising, corporate business, weddings, life events. It's really great. And if you're just a student, they have a student package, which is the same thing, but for six bucks, which is amazing. And uh, if you don't want to subscribe, this is what I love about this website. Let's say that you have too many subscriptions going and you just want to get a quote for one track, they can do that too. Super easy, uh, a great catalog of stuff. And even if you aren't doing a project right now, but you're planning a project, go through their catalog, have it in your brain what music you can use for your project. And then you can start planning that. Really cool shit. Head on over to jambox.io and check it out. Last up for today's reads, our friends over at ETC. ETC makes amazing light units. These guys have been doing uh, the Source 4 profile lights, which are the spotlights. They've been doing them for concerts. They've been doing them uh, for film for quite some time now. Uh, I love those spotlights. I've used them on all our music videos. And now they've transitioned to doing these amazing LED units. Uh, they have their FOS slash 4 Fresnels and their panels that are fantastic. Let me do one of their basic reads here. A lot of us in the film industry has used the, have used the iconic Source 4 profiles on set. ETC, the maker of the Source 4, has been working hard in recent years to give us incredible new fixtures specifically to be used with cameras. I have my hands on their FOS slash 4 Fresnel, which, if you've been listening to the show, is equivalent to an 1800s. So when we were talking about having to put a light outside the window, this unit works really well for that. Uh, one of the most eye-catching eye aspects, Jesus, Michael, of this line of fixtures is the color mix. Their Luster X8 array includes deep red emitters, which not only open more color mixing options than you'd get with a traditional 4 Studio uh, four color studio fixture, but it also leads to richer, more natural beams of light at any color point that you use. So they have figured out a way to make the color more richer with their settings on ETC. If you don't believe me, head on over to ETC, uh, connect.com backslash love the process. All of their fixtures are backed by 24 seven customer care support. Uh, check out their FOS4 Fresnel and their panel by visiting etcconnect.com backslash love the process. And while you're at it, head on over to inlovetheprocess.com and check out more information on our sponsors. Check out all sorts of information on today's episode. And if you're new to the show and you're like, holy shit, there's almost 200 episodes of this thing. Yeah, that's right. It's how hard we work here. Um, I have them all sorted and categorized by uh, guest. 
So like, if you want to go listen to the directors, there's a director section. If you want to go listen to more crew members, there's a crew member section. Head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com where I've made it easy for you. Okay, there it is, our ad reads. Let's get back to it with Charlie. even gave you a pause uh section so that way i could you know make sure you know as a podcaster i made sure that you're like okay i'm not talking over you when i have to have an edit point so i'm leaving the i have to go pee in there so just letting you know. <laughs> fair enough fair enough uh, uh all right so how was ms mazel how was working on that show uh it was it was the best show i've ever worked on and also the worst show i've ever worked on Ooh. um I mean, I absolutely love and adore everybody on that set. I was really bummed to have left that set. Um, I, I had been on it since the pilot. So I did the pilot with that. So the producer on that show, Dana Gilbert, I had worked on the show Vinyl with her. So she was mm-hmm. a line producer on the show Vinyl. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got on Vinyl due to my friend Reed Morano, who I had been working with for many, many years. Now she's a big time director and producer so and I don't get to work with her very often anymore um but she uh was like doing this little pilot for Amazon back when I don't know if you remember when Amazon used to do these things we're like hey you know watch this pilot and vote on whether yes. or not we should make this thing you know that's super weird to do right it's just like just dangling this in front of like directors careers of like oh should we make this thing really uh, this is yeah. what we should do it's just yeah, um, it's totally so I, it's totally a Silicon Valley thing where it's just yeah, like, let's yeah. test like, this it, yeah beta test it yeah A B test it yeah weird. yeah um, but so I, I mean I worked on it since the pilot so I had been there for uh, you know three years three seasons of television um, for that show but like it, there was such an in, intense times and they do so many wonders on that show where it's just like you literally are just like I'm I'm not doing like a ton of color work on that show because David Mullen is a you know, he's a fantastic DP and such a nice person and just like really knows his shit inside and out. Like like half the time we'd have conversations about Star Trek and Star Wars and all that sort of stuff and like, you know, other <laughs> color science stuff. And just like he and I would just both nerd out next to each other about different things. Like, oh, hey, we're shooting. Oh, darn. Uh, you know, just have to like catch up on the monitors. But we would, um, it's just like, there's not a ton of of color work done on that show because David likes to do a, like a majority of the stuff in camera as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But so I'm like doing little tweaks here and there. And, and that's primarily just matching cameras, matching lenses. Cause even if you put a different lens on from, I think we were shooting Panavision Primos, I want to say is when we shot uncoded, I think is what we shot. Mm-hmm. But those, every lens has different like characteristics with it. So like, I'd say like 70% of my job color work and whatnot is just matching lenses making sure that like the the close-up and the wide have the same consistency and same color because it might be a little greener a little bluer whatever warmer so and so forth mm-hmm. so and lighting and, and, and camera angles change how color is represented and captured as well um but um so but there's just that show is just so difficult to work on because like the the longest I've ever worked an entire week was on that show, which was 90.7 hours. Oh, my I've, God. Oh, my yeah, God. So in season two, when they're in the Catskills, we were there for an entire week. So we shot somewhere that was like three and a half hours away uh, on a on a campground. Um, and then we had we were shuttled back and forth from a hotel, which was like half hour away. Ugh. So. Within a, I want to say, I'm pretty sure that was a six-day week. Um, 
because there's no way you can do 90 hours in five days. Um, but it was still like, you know, you get, you, you get travel day, you go up there, you, just, you get your work in 16 hour days because you shoot, because there's scenes that take place at night and in the day. So you're literally just working all day long. Um, but it's just like, uh, and I don't, I don't know how like Jimmy McConkey does it at all. Like he is, a if you want to have somebody on the podcast too, like highly recommend reaching out to him because he has stories for days and he's like the nicest person. He has a, he just, he wants to talk to so many people about that. Oh really? Um, that, that process. Yeah. I mean, Jim's been, um, he was he was a, a a bit of a mentor as well because I was also operating too. So he like gave me opportunities to operate on things here and there, not a camera, but like you no. Know, whenever they have C camera days, I would I would hop on this on that day. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, but it was just you just you I'm like I'm keeping out uh, ideas for your or, uh, eyes out for focus and making sure that's good as well as like coordinating with the, the colorist every single day because you know even though we're not doing a ton of like in camera color, like David might want to say like. Hey, like actually, I want to change this. I want to, you know, make sure that this is played a little bit more contrasty, or it's a little bit more moody, or maybe it's like, you know, maybe you know, have um, Aaron cool off the Aaron's the Daily's colorist on the show. Like, have Aaron cool off the you know this scene a little bit more than what we shot it. Um, and then David would literally he would watch every single daily, every single day, would look at all the stills, would make sure everything was there. And if, if they missed a screenshot of like a certain setup, like David would be like, hey where's the screenshots for this? And like, and then I would have to go through and then, you know, talk with the colorist, make sure everything came through it. So it's just like, it's a lot of management of things, mm-hmm. keeping eyes out for uh, everyone in the departments, making sure the wireless was good. Um, and since they do so many wonders, like you have to think about like, you know, RF interference for the press, the single channel controllers, which is like the Iris controller. Yep. So yep. for those who don't know, like a lot of these productions use wireless uh, remote uh, focus and Iris control. Uh, which through uh, you know a Preston controller, Preston Cinema Systems, um, and therefore like you know the, the the iris controllers will sit on my carts. So that way David can control what stop it is, or he'll do like incremental pulls. We do a lot of pulls on that show with iris pulls. So like you're going from like a a, a T2 to like a T2.8, or you know uh, anywhere from like a 2.8 to a four, or like maybe even a third of a stop pull. Um, just little things here and there, but David likes to do all that stuff himself. Whereas sometimes I'll ask the DP if they want me to do it, but um, but it's a lot of just like keeping tabs on things and running cables and like making sure that sound is good as well and like helping out and, and figuring out the interference for um, all the the wireless video because like for those who don't know, like they don't work as magic. Like they're all based on like Wi-Fi signals and whatnot too. So you have to like take into account everyone's phone on set is generating. RF interference. Right, right. So it's like a lot of that is making sure that the actual process and like the channels are proper because like if it's something drops out in the middle of a shot and David can't see it, like he's going to freak out about things because all of a sudden like, you know, we're in the middle of a seven minute oneer and the, the image drops out for one second. Like it's like stressful for everyone involved because now they don't know if they got that seven minute take you know that's yeah sort of thing, that's so. an eternity too a second in that period of time yeah it really is so it's just like it was a lot of um it, it was a lot of just it was, it was a lot of stress is really what it comes down to but the, the work is so satisfying and everyone involved was there uh it was just super amazing to work with great personalities like everyone took care of you like they understood that it was long hard days and um just everyone was just like 
super great to work with on that show. And I, I, I really miss that, that crew. And there's just a lot of good people, um, involved with that. So, well, you guys created really great content. It's my, it's my favorite streaming show. And I like when you watch it, it's jaw dropping the, the level of precision with the blocking that that show has and the level of precision with the camera movement. And, um, it's just one of the most gorgeous, beautiful fucking TV shows out there. I think. Um, yeah, they, they do such a great job. I'm really excited to watch season four cause I got to work a couple days on season four. Oh, nice. And just the amount of production value on that show is just astronomical. Like <laughs> I, I won't spoil anything for you, but there is a certain part of season four where they are in an establishment for a good like couple episodes from what I think. And they built that entire establishment. I won't say what it is, but <laughs> they built it. They spent a lot of money and built it. Yeah. If you, and if you guys want to get even more nerdy about that, I've had the production designer on the show. Go back and listen to the other episodes. Is it Bill Groom? Or? Yeah, Bill. Yeah, I've had Bill. Bill's great. Show. Yeah, Bill's awesome. He was also on vinyl, too. Oh, yeah, that's right. He was on vinyl. That's right. That's how I know him. Yeah, I mean, everyone from... Um, a lot of people from vinyl came over uh, because of Dana. So Dana was the line producer on vinyl, and then she's like, you know, I'm going to you know, take a step forward and start producing. And, of course, the first producing job she gets is Maisel. So. <laughs> it's crazy. And she it's kills crazy, it because yeah. she, puts, she puts crew first, really. And that, and that really comes down to, like, a good uh, rapport with just producers. Like, she cares about people. She cares about the product. She cares about what she's doing. She makes sure that, like, um, even if we have, like, really tough days like she like is very much uh wants to make sure that everyone's taken care of like if there's a problem she addresses it it's just the whole producing team on that show is just outstanding and like honestly that was why i was so bummed about leaving the show because i was like well now i'm um i'm not here for this and so like i just i want to make sure that i'm actually here i don't know i was just like i was really bummed about leaving the producing team because i've i've never been involved in a tv show that is cared that much about everything. Mm -hmm. so, and it shows. Well, and take note, listeners. <laughs> you know, you're talking, you're listening to a, uh, a, a dude that's working on the crew and he's doing in, insane hours, exhausting period, like exhausting runs on this thing. And he's still like, I miss this team. I miss this crew. It's It really comes down to not being a piece of shit at the end of the yeah. day. It really does. And, and, and understanding that, uh, your gaffer or your grips or your PAs aren't boxes of gear. Uh, they're actually human beings. And so it, like as soon as you keep that in mind when you're planning out things or when you're uh, looking around at your set and you see folks start to fade, you, you see this happen. You see morale go down, become involved with it. Try to figure out what the problem is. Try to understand what's happening and be there for these folks. And they will go to the end of the earth with you if you do that. Um, I just don't get, like, there's this whole mantra. And it's so funny, like, the social issues that needed to happen for people to get, quote-unquote, canceled for being pieces of shit. Like, yeah. there's been this cancer in our industry of, like, ego and shit-talking, like, like there's just so much trash that comes with the ego that you need to have to get a project up and running. And it's weird because, uh, and this is, this is such a weird uh, side tangent and I won't get too deep into it, but um, it's something that I have come to understand between my crew, 
between my career and between talking to folks on this show, this weird game of needing an ego in order to get people to finance something. And so once you get very high above the line and you're in the pitching process and you're in the, it took five, six years for this thing to get fucking greenlit and I've been through the shit and I've been through all this terrible stuff to get this thing up and running. And then being able to shed that, all that trauma, all that ego, all that bullshit when you actually make this fucking thing in order for it to come out great, in order for you to have really great working relationships with people, in order for you to really enjoy it. Um, yeah. is, is very difficult for a lot of fucking folks. In yeah, I'm business. surprised that there's not much, you know, in that regards of like, you know, especially on the indie side of things where like you have somebody who's labored over a script for 10 years or just like, you know, a project that's been trying, you've been going through the shit, through the mud, trying to get it up and running. I've seen that happen a lot, especially with like independent films where yeah. the, like the directors and like the producers are just like assholes to everyone. And I'm just like, how do you, how do people like, not have a more sense of um, like just enjoyment or just like uh, appreciation for like this is finally happening like ha and, like not be like overjoyed and overcome with it maybe it's just you know like you said just the ego side of things but I guess like the other side to that too is like if you're gonna have an ego like don't be or I guess there's more of a fine line between ego and confidence confidence that's a big line that's down. a hard line for people to figure it took me years to figure that shit out like yeah you know, like, because you have to be confident. And I think the difference is, here's where I think the, the, the big difference is. Confidence comes from prep. Confidence comes from you spending time running through scenarios, prepping things out, actually spending time and asking and answering the questions before you have to be on set to do it. That's where you find confidence. Ego comes from some sort of like, <laughs> some sort of, egotistical belief in which I can figure this out no matter what. So yeah. no matter what, the answers are within me. So when someone comes to ask you a question on set and you don't know the answer to that question, you feel like you need to have a fucking answer. And so then you go through the process of coming up with some bullshit fucking answer. And then you know it's bullshit. And so then you're trying to justify that bullshit by saying, who are you to fucking question me on what my answers are? That's bullshit. At the end of the day. Yeah. And you can see it and smell it as a crew person or someone that's working with you. You can see it in the eyes of the person as they start to talk and you sit there and go, this motherfucker didn't do his homework. He didn't do any of his research. He didn't do his shit. And it's fine for you not to have the answers for things. And if you don't, here's a, here's a great hack. I'm sorry that I'm ranting, but no, it's fine. It's great. I love it. Here's a great I'm learning something. <laughs> here's a great hack. If you don't know the answer to it. Say you don't know it. It's that simple. Yeah. Just go, I don't know it. Does anybody have an idea? And that's honestly in working in network television for an entire season, which I do not recommend anybody do ever. Uh, <laughs> there, there's been the amount of, the amount of ego and bullshit and people who are just like, don't have their shit together. Is It's like you said, you can smell it. You can see it instantly yeah instantly um and it's funny is the people who have their shit together and actually do the research and do the project and, and understand like what they want not just not coverage for the sake of coverage but like understanding what they want and the story they want to tell mm -hmm. like you like having those people like 
um, be there and like have that, that, that preparation, they're the ones I've found who are like much more appreciative of the crew because they realize what they're asking of the crew to get their visions across. And they seem to intend to be a lot more like super appreciative and thankful and like want to have, um, you know, they want to like do the best by their crew and like have those short days and get the only things that they need. They're not trying to drag out days because of, you know, they have 12 hours, so they're going to shoot 12 hours. You know, it's just like that sort of thing. Um, I find that people who are who don't know what they want and don't really, you know, they they think they can fix it later are the ones that tend to be like the most loud and arrogant and yeah. like not not fun to work for. So yeah, and I have said this on the show a hundred times, and I will say it a hundred more times. I don't believe that there are like straight out of the womb geniuses when it comes to filmmaking. <laughs> I don't I don't think that like. Just because your mom uh, was a vegetarian while she was pregnant, you suddenly uh, glean the skills to be a filmmaker. As you, as soon as you can speak, you're pointing a you know past a camera at actors. I don't think that that exists. It really just comes down to experience, time, and and making mistakes and learning from your mistakes. And uh, I cannot stress prep enough. I, literally last week, I've been uh, just storyboarding for a project. And in the storyboarding process and figuring out my shots, looking at a script and going, okay, this could be anything. So how am I designing my shots? Well, what does this mean thematically? And what does this mean if the camera's at this height? What does it say about that character? So because there isn't a team of people behind me waiting all day, and there isn't the producers sitting there going, this is costing us thousands of dollars for uh, your inability to come up with an answer quickly, I can sit here in my own time and start to write out storyboards that I feel like have meaning and purpose and thematical reasoning behind them. And as I go through this process on my own, I find that the same thing happens when I'm boarding that happens when I'm on a set that I'm not prepared, where I get lethargic. I hit a point where my brain starts to freeze up. And I did this the other day where I'm like, okay, this scene's gonna have probably about 14 shots of coverage. And of course, I write down all the exciting key points that I see in my brain. But then there are these transitional shots that I'm like, how the fuck does this happen? And I literally have to <laughs> sit up from the table, go into the kitchen, make a sandwich, watch something on TV for a half hour, and then come back down and sit down and go, oh, I'm an asshole. I'll scrap those two shots and I'll do this with one. That is the luxury of prep. And I see so many people not do that and then get on set. And then the entire production comes to a halt because... They have that lethargic or they have that uh, brain freeze fucking moment where they go, oh, I don't know how this fucking. You, uh, OK, well, let's just cover this with like five fucking cameras instead of doing that prep. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense if you're doing like an action sequence and you're like having, you know, like 19 cuts in three seconds kind of deal. So like you need the coverage to be able to shoot it properly yeah. or have like those angles and whatnot. But like it, that it changes the approach of from a crew crew perspective because you know i've been a dit i've been an operator i've been a dp um it just it just changes that approach to have um that sort of confidence from the person who's calling the shots knowing that like oh this person has done their homework um i'm gonna go the extra mile because they've gone the extra mile therefore um it's not just a job i'm not just collecting a paycheck i feel personally invested in this yeah because this person's been personally invested in it and they're interested in not only the story of what it is that they're trying to do, but every shot has a meaning. It's not just frivolous. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then, if you're stacking, if you've done that research, and you, this comes back to my 
my philosophy that this is a visual fucking medium. Like this is this is this isn't like a book on tape. <laughs> this isn't this isn't a novel. This isn't a script. This is a visual medium. And so everything that you do, every time you cut that camera, every time you turn on a light, it should be supporting the emotional context of a scene. It should be supporting the emotional journey of a character. Every fucking time you do anything. Um, or it just looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, you know, you could do that. I mean, and then you'd probably be working on the new Transformers movie. But yeah. <laughs> hey, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with the cash grab, man. I'm like, I'd do that in a heartbeat. Are you kidding me? You, oh, dude, I would too. <laughs> I, I mean, I'd sold, I'd sold my, I mean, uh, I, I don't know when you want to get into like what I'm doing now. But like, sure, you know, I sold my, my DP, uh, the last DP I worked with, which is David Franco. I was like, hey, David, you get, you, um, you go if you get a Marvel film or a Marvel TV series, I will quit my job at Adobe and let's do it. So. <laughs> well, what are you doing right now? So um, I'm still DITing here and there. I do like uh, weekend work or uh, little things here and there if, if I can. Um, you know, if I have like blocks of time off, like I'll, I'll, I'll reach out to people say, "Hey, I'm available for commercials and whatnot." But um, so I actually work for Adobe. Um, but before I worked for Adobe, I worked for a little startup called Frame.io. <laughs> and so I've been a Frame.io user and I'm, tr I'm, I'm going to try my hardest to not make this an ad or a commercial for Frame.io. <laughs> uh, I'm just like literally telling it as it is because I'm for, for those who know me, uh, know me, I'm a very much a straight shooter. I don't do bullshit. I don't like uh, frivolous stuff. Um, I tell it I don't tell it how it is. I don't really want to use that term because other people have used that term. Yes. Um, but like, you know, I just like I don't like to sugarcoat things. I kind of just like, you know, it, it's very much like with the DIT, what you see is what you get is very similar to how I am. So, um, so this is, this is, this is not uh, a paid advertisement for this. This is just li literally just my, um, my thing. Yeah. Um, so I was actually uh, working on um, that, that show Raising Canaan um, last spring where we're here in the East Coast. We had that spring where it was just like super cold up until like July. Mm -hmm. And so we were doing six weeks of overnights, six weeks in the cold. It was snowing and raining. It was like 33 degrees. So it was like not warm enough. It was warm enough to not be warm. But not if it wasn't cold enough to snow and it was just raining, it was just terrible. It was like the worst experience I've had. It was definitely one of those jobs that we've all had them where you're like, why am I in this industry? What am I doing? What's the <laughs> opportunity? Yeah. And so I uh, got an opportunity. like, hey, would you like to interview for this for this position? And I was at that point, I was like, yes, please get me off this set. Like, how do I get out of here? I don't want to work nights anymore. Um, and I was like, hey, yeah, sure, I'll give it a try. So I, I interviewed at Frame and it was a great uh, position I deal with partnerships so it's like you know we have Teradek as a partner we have sound devices as a partner mm -hmm. uh, connecting to their new cloud platform called camera to cloud uh, I won't get too much into that but essentially it's um, allows you to use a third-party device to upload um, clips directly to frame IO so you can use it for like instant playback yeah <clears throat> and um, so uh, they said hey would you be would you like to do this and I was like you know what I need to change I've been doing this for 15 years I just want to try something different um, my wife and I had a, a conversation about it. We want to have a family soon and it's really difficult to have a family in the industry. Yeah. So yeah. we're just like, you know what, I'll, you know, I'll give it a try for a year. I'll try it for a year. I still have all my gear. If I don't like it, the film industry is always here. I can always go back. So I was uh, employed for a month and then, uh, then the announcement came out that Adobe was buying Frame.io and I was like, well, <laughs> I guess I'm in this for more than a year. So, uh, I'll try it out. But it's just, um, 
it, it just happenstance of like, I've always been at the forefront of technology and I really enjoy anything tech related. Mm-hmm. And I've just always been a fan of just, just, you know, tech in general and I've, I've been a frame user for since they they started in 2015 so i was just like you know this is great um so i, I figured i'd give it a shot and um and i really enjoy it i think it's a, a great little you know i mean it's not a startup anymore but like you know sure. they, they, they do some crazy stuff so i pretty much handle partnerships with things so it's like i'm still doing the schmoozing with with customers and partners and i get to do i get to talk to some awesome integrations and integrators and do some cool stuff uh, nothing I can talk about because of NDA stuff, but sure, um, sure, sure, sure. either way, it's 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 nice to be able to apply what I've done in the um, in my tenure as a DIT and onset work, and and be able to translate that to the real world, which is almost impossible to do. So, <laughs> well, but, that's cool, uh, man. That's great. So yeah. Um, so now that Adobe's sort of taken Frame.io, is Frame.io still acting as if it's its own thing and Adobe's sort of a big brother that's in the background kind of vibe? That's or? correct, yeah. yeah. So they're not, they're, everyone's always, like quite literally as soon as I said I was accepting the offer to work at, they're like, oh, great. So it's like, great. This is, so Adobe, is, it's not going to work just like Frame's not going to work. Oh, this is great. I'm like, well, that's not how it's going to work at all. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. But no, it's been, it's, yeah, they've, we've been operating on its own um, and 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 perfectly fine. Uh, they they kind of didn't want to, you know, rock the boat with us because we had a good thing going. So they're mm-hmm. just kind of like letting us do our own thing, which is great. So can't I can't speak too much more to it. But there's sure. um, there's there's some cool stuff happening, and I'm 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 excited to be constantly at the forefront of technology because that's what I was doing with DITing, and that's what I you know can t- still do. Like I'm still a part of like the DIT communities. And I still run my blog for DITs, mm-hmm. um, which I need to update really badly <laughs> I haven't updated in like a year so but, um it just gives me an opportunity to to be home I work from home um get to be see my wife more often get to see um some things and I get to say no to a lot of projects which is fun that's always the fun part yeah no yeah um, well I mean you and with time comes the ability to say no which is nice sometimes yeah it, you know it, it really is but they still give me the chance to take days if I want to. They said, they said, you know, if there's something pops up and you want to do it, you know, you can take a day or two to go do it if you really want to. So I'm still doing stuff. So it's not like I'm completely out and it keeps me relevant. So which is nice. That's great, dude. Well, congrats. Congrats on Thank all you. that stuff, man. Uh, this has been great. This has been a good episode. I think we're sort of yeah. uh, approaching the, the, well, yeah, we're over the hour mark. So we're getting there. Um, yeah, man, I appreciate you sharing all the stories about the DIT stuff. And, uh, you know, I, d- I know we didn't talk much about your DP stuff, but uh, your work is really great. I'll have a Thank link you. to his episode or to his, uh, Jesus, Michael, I'll have a link to his <laughs> website underneath the podcast here. So definitely uh, go through the description and check out all of Charlie's stuff. Um and yeah, we have to hang out, man. Like, uh, yeah, for sure. Because you know, I'm sure that uh, I'm you barbecue fan. Yeah, you like barbecue. I'm gone. Yeah, I mean, I I um, wasn't eating meat for a while due to health reasons, but now I'm I'm back. Um, I'm actually doing keto right now. So my my wife absolutely my wife's Italian, so she's like, "You're not going to eat pasta for how long?" <laughs> I'm just like, "Oh my god." I know. Um, I know so too. now I'm like, okay, what can I do? And it's like, and then I literally saw yours and Cruda's like posts about barbecue i'm like ooh, i could do some more barbecue so now i gotta go down the, the barbecue um rabbit hole because like all i don't even i have like a charcoal grill that's really all i have so now you i gotta can, you could do a lot with a charcoal grill brother you can 
but could... I'm also like, I'm trying to be efficient. So I like, I got to figure out what I can do. Like, I don't, do I go the, do I, I mean, we could probably have a conversation just about barbecue. Like, I know. Do I, I go the green egg problem down that route or do I go, so do I just continue to start with the charcoal grill? Like, I don't know. All right. All right. At the, with the risk of all of the people listening to the show, rolling their eyes, fuck it. We're going to go down this hole for a moment here. Uh, so, all right. So what do you want to do? Do you want to like just smoke meats? Do you want to grill meats? Like, what are you thinking? Oh man, I just like I kind of want to try everything to see what I like and what I don't like because mm-hmm. I'm very I'm very open minded person. So I'm like, okay, do I want to give this a go? Do I want to try this? I don't really know. Like, I mean, I've done uh, like lap not this Thanksgiving, but the Thanksgiving before. Like, I did a whole smoked turkey on the on the charcoal grill, which was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. took like eight hours to do, but it was great. But like, I've done that. But like, I've always wanted to try. I don't know I've never been like a huge barbecue grill person, but like I kind of want to give it a go because it looks awesome. And how ma- how many people do you think you're going to be doing it for? Just yourself and your wife, or like? How yeah, many? Okay. probably just the two of us. So, okay. but also bad. I could always I don't know how well that stuff holds. So I don't know if it's like stick in the fridge for a day and you have to eat it the next day kind of deal. Eh, this, this, yeah, kind of. Um, but okay, that's good to know. And uh, how involved do you like to be? Are you someone that like? Uh, is a set it and forget it kind of guy or are you someone that wants to sit outside and, and uh, babysit a fire with beers for like six seven hours like uh i mean i do i do enjoy a good uh Michelob ultra oh, God, I, just, I hate myself for saying that um, you, you did on air that's on, uh, that's on air <laughs> uh, i do i do enjoy attending to a fire uh for uh, an hour but i do realistically my personality type is more of a set and forget it kind of person well because the reason i ask and this is you know I'm sure, I don't know if Crude had told you, but we have our own like little barbecue group, text group of all of our buddies. Oh my goodness. And yes, it's, I'm sure. it's just us like, you know, giving each other shit and like, you know, who's grilling. And, um, and I just recently, you know, I, I think it was due to uh, an emotional response to social media because of course I follow all these different barbecue folks and all these people mm-hmm. that yeah. are like pit masters and all this shit. And so I was like, is... Can you call yourself a pit master if you're using a pellet grill? And that was my that was my my angry statement, which of which I put into a group with a bunch of dudes that have pellet grills. So of course course. I started a fight with that. Um, But uh, you can. There are a bunch of really great uh, pellet units out there. A lot of Traeger units that uh, are kind of a set it and forget it kind of thing, where it'll feed the pellet. You put a temperature in, it'll run through it. You still have your hands involved with like how you're prepping the meat, whether you're wrapping the meat, where you're placing it on the grill. Um, those are great. They are expensive, but uh, you know, those are the type of thing where like if you have kids, if you're gonna have kids and you wanna have barbecue, but you, you, know, you don't have the time to sit out and stoke a fire, um, that's one way to do it. Or you could do what I did, which is I got myself one of those Weber kettles so like they look, right. they look like a like a pill like a standing up pill like a like a tube, um, and those are really great. I got the small one first, which is very inexpensive, and you can get that from like Home Depot for nothing. And I, I ended up upgrading because I have barbecues where I cook for like you know fifteen people or whatever the fuck. Um, but uh, on the small end, you get those little guys. And it isn't a lot of babysitting. Really, you just put in, they're insulated well enough that if you put in a basket of coals, 
Uh, you could pretty much run through uh, rack of ribs in a basket, maybe a basket and a half of coals and some lump uh, wood. And uh, you get a really good fucking response out of it. If you're if you're getting into the game where you want to start doing briskets and shit, you yeah. know, there's more time involved with that. But uh, I think the, the bullet smokers are a great way in um, because you, you really can't fuck it up. Um, and yeah, that's, I think I have something similar than that. It's very, I have something very similar to that, that kettle charcoal grill. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It just seems like you really can go down a rabbit hole with all this stuff. I'm just oh like, I've looked God, into it. Dude. I was just like, I don't, it's, it's almost overwhelming. You're just like, okay, I just want to like dip my toe in, be like, okay, how do I, how do I start with this? And I know, I just know my personality type. Like, as soon as I get it, I'm like, this is awesome. (laughs) Just like, but you got to remind, you got to remind yourself that some of the best barbecue in the country is in the, in like an overgrown backyard with a pile of cinder blocks and a metal door thrown on top of them. That's true. Like at the end of the day, a lot of this tech shit when it comes to barbecue is tech shit where you're like, okay, does it really fucking matter? Does it matter that much? And yes, you can get nerdy, like don't wrap it in foil, wrap it in butcher paper. You can start to go down that path, which is fun. It definitely is. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, there's just a couple things. Don't dry out the meat. Don't burn the meat. You know, let it cook long enough so that it starts to fall apart and uh, you're good to go. (laughs) I'm going to try my hardest to not buy a Wi-Fi thermometer because I know that I would just like, yeah, I want to do a Wi-Fi thermometer so my... my, uh, device that talks back to me i don't want to say its name because it'll go off uh and also don't want to get other people to go off um it's like well just tell me when the meat's at perfect temperature like i'm just gonna like eyeball it so that's what i did with the turkey and it turned out great so well dude i have i have some of those thermometers i mean thermometers are great (laughs) they really are and the best one that i do have is like the six dollar digital readout handheld one Mm -hmm. that i just go and i stab in the fucking meat that's the one that i end up really uh trusting most of the time with my stuff but yeah it is like anything else it's like being on a film set you just do it long enough where you're like got it and you can look at how the meat's sweating you can feel the way the meat's doing its thing the unfortunate side effect of it is the side effect that i've been dealing with you do it long enough you get really good at it you also get high fucking cholesterol (laughs) so so then you're not allowed to do it for a little while <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to balance right now, making sure that I don't have that with my current diet. So, yeah, but um, yeah, but it's you know it's it's fun. It's just a lot of a lot of cheese and a lot of bacon. So Jesus, dude, that's like everything. I wish that's like everything I'm not supposed to do right now. <laughs> I know, right? Well, if the thing is like if you cut out if you cut out carbs for the most part, it doesn't become a problem. But I won't get into the science of all. That I've heard stuff, this. I've heard this. I've heard this. Which I've, I've done it before. It's 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 it works great for me, and it's something that like. I need to do as a, like a reset every few years just to kind of like, you know, to get off the COVID weight because it's, it's just yeah. sitting at home and working at home and you don't realize like how many steps you take while you work on set. Oh so my God, like, you know, dude. Oh my e- God. Easily like 10,000 steps, if not more. So one of the best things that you can have in any of your, no matter what position you're on on the set, one of the best things that you can have in your toolkit is a great pair of fucking shoes. You yeah. really need good shoes for set. Which I'm happy to give you my my recommendation if you Ooh, ever want. What's your what's your recommendation? Do it on air. Uh, it is on cloud, like the Swedish running shoes. I don't know if you've seen those or heard of those. On cloud. On cloud. Like O N. They are. I won't buy any other shoes. 
Uh, they are the only pair of shoes I will ever wear, and they're the most comfortable. They're expensive. They're like 160 bucks a pair. But I tell you what, I've I have back problems. I've had yes problems from like just being on set and just in general operating cameras, doing stuff, running around set. Me too. Yeah. Um, Jimmy McConkie from Maisel told me about that season one. I was like, ah, whatever. Those are the only shoes he wears with steady camming. I was like, if he can wear these shoes all day long on set, I mean, he goes through them. He has like you know multiple pairs a month because of uh, you know how much steady cam work he does. I mean, he destroys them. But uh, I've done a lot of research, well, not research, sleuthing, due diligence, and trying to find some stuff. Um, and they are by far like the best shoes I've ever worn. Like they're light, they're performance. They're not very warm, but you know they're main, mainly for running. But they do have like a trail shoe, some every other day shoe. They oh, have some cool. sneakers. Cool. They are the most comfortable pair of shoes I've ever worn in my entire life, and I'll never buy another pair of shoes. Oh, well, another brand, I should say. I'm gonna have to check those out. <laughs> I should yeah. probably reach out to them to see if they'll become a sponsor. At this I mean, point. They, I think they do sponsors, so you should you should definitely check out. Yeah, check I'm gonna them check out. them out. Um, well, dude. This has been great, Charlie. Um, I can't yeah, wait. Next time I'm on the East Coast hanging out with Crew Dog, we'll have to all get together. and. Uh, yeah, let me know. Hit me up for sure. You know, let Dave know. It's like, hey, that Charlie guy, text him. See if he's around. I'll yeah, come down. Yeah, come yeah. hang out. Or come hang in, out. You know, either in Boston or in the city. Yeah. Yeah. The last time I was in the city, I was hanging out with him. And we did, because it was in, uh, where was he? He's in Brooklyn. So we, we did a barbecue in Brooklyn. Yeah. And I was just loving the fact that I only had to walk two blocks to get out of the butcher. So like yeah. literally halfway through the day, I'm like, I'm going to get more sausages at the butcher. Yeah. <laughs> It's so good. Yeah, it's great. Uh, but anyway, let's wrap this episode up. Thanks so cool. much for being on the show, big man. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Sorry I went into the nerdum of uh, all the tech stuff, but I'm hoping some people didn't gl- have their eyes gloss over and, and are curious. So. And there's, a, there's a lot of nerds that listen to the show. We're good, dude. <laughs> right. Awesome. Right. What do you think? I like Charlie. He's a cool dude. It's funny how small, like he said, it's funny how small this community is. Uh, never met Charlie in person. I didn't realize that Charlie knew Crew Dog before we started the show. I should have. Um, but uh, really fucking weird. <laughs> and hopefully now you know. So when you're sitting next to your uncle or your mom or your best friend and you're waiting to find out which of the avengers is coming back in the next marvel movie uh you could sit there and go hey i know what a dit does boom and then they'll go well how'd you know this were you born with these skills and you go no i listened to in love with the process and uh mike uh barely got us through uh <laughs> an episode that educated us on what a dit does um Hope you guys found it informative. And uh, for those of you who are looking for a crew position, those of you who have been wanting to work on movie sets, and maybe you do come from the computer world, maybe you come from the tech side, and you're like, I want to get nerdy with this shit, but I don't know how to use cameras. I have no interest in being a cinematographer. Uh, The job of a DIT is an interesting one to look at uh, because it is very technical, very technical. Uh, And the thing that's so crazy about gear and the one thing that you can depend upon with gear whether you're talking like wireless video transmitters or if you're talking uh fucking just monitors or cables is that it's always going to go down 
no matter how good they build it, no matter how well it's manufactured, there are all these different elements that interfere with your equipment. So if you're someone that is fast on your toes, if you're someone that is uh, a problem solver, if you're, <laughs> if you're the kid that every member in your family would call to ask you why their internet's not working, this is probably the job for you, okay? And we'll try to do more episodes like this. Uh, send me a message on Instagram. Drop me a message and say, hey, Mike, what does this crew guy do? Is there a specific crew position that uh, you just never understood? Have you been watching movies and going like, what the fuck is this person do? What is a teamster? What is this? What is that? Ask me. And uh, we'll try to get those folks on the show. Um, and uh, we'll learn from them. And you notice how I said, we'll learn from them? Because I love this. I love learning from these folks. I love uh, getting something from the experiences that they've had. Uh, I mean, fuck, dude. I, I'm i not kidding. I am so excited about the new season of Marvelous Miss Maisel. I think it's the one streaming show that has got me turnt, as they say. I'm so excited about it their cinematography skills, their directing skills, their blocking, the acting is really gorgeous, the production design's gorgeous. I love that fucking show. So I am waiting, I think it comes out in February, is what I've heard. Uh, so I'm very pumped about that. There's a few streaming shows that are really great. I started watching um, that uh, Station Eleven, and that was interesting. That's on HBO, right? I think that's on HBO. That's cool. I only saw two episodes and then Gina fucking binged it. So she watched that whole lineup. Uh, the beginning was cool. I'm interested with it. Um, and I've also been watching Peacemaker, uh, James Gunn's show, which, okay. So when I saw the ads for Peacemaker, I kind of was like, ah, man, it's not going to be as good as, um, you know, Suicide Squad was. And the production value just seems a bit lower. But I watched it. And man, he kills it. The first three episodes he directed, I hope he does most of the season. Um, but uh, just his his nuance with character, his ability to make you fall in love with despicable characters is really great. Um, but also just, he obviously, it's completely apparent that he started in trauma. It's completely apparent that he comes from the indie world. Um, and I would say James Gunn is a modern day uh, Sam Raimi. I really would, because he really has uh, that attention to detail. Uh, he really knows how to inject his personality into camera movement and camera style and blocking. Um, so I enjoyed it. Uh, there's a mixed reviews. I posted about it on Instagram. And of course, I get mixed reviews from everybody like, uh, or the people really love it. You know, um, I think it's great. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'll take my opinion over the rest of you. <laughs> Because I spent a lot of time doing this shit. And I talk to these folks. And I understand when people are cutting corners and when they're not cutting corners. And this just feels like what James Gunn does so well, which is a labor of love. And he uh, was obviously very much inspired by this character to come off of that movie and just lock himself away for a few weeks and just write this fucking series. And then go shoot and direct this series during a fucking pandemic, nonetheless. And to have it blow away a lot of these higher priced hoity-toity fucking series that are supposedly going to win all these awards and you just watch them and it's a bunch of people standing around in two shots just talking at each other and and talking about the opening scene for the series that they spent all their money on and that's it 
And what I love about Peacemaker is that he's really clever about doing all that stuff to make it feel fresh, to make it feel interesting, to make it feel fun. And no, this isn't an advertisement for it, but you guys are consistently asking me what I'm watching. So enjoy them. Check them out if you haven't already. And if you disagree with me, write to me on Instagram. If you do agree with me, write to me on Instagram. Do you, do you catch the motif here? Just write to me. Interact. I love that about you guys. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. Thank you for supporting us. Um, and as always, I will see you next Tuesday.